Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. A trend to provide tuition waivers for Native American students could remove a major barrier for those wanting to continue their education. Colorado, California, Oregon, and a handful of other places and institutions are recognizing the importance of investing in Native students. Could it be the key to closing the education gap? We'll talk about what's behind the trend and how students can access free tuition programs coming up right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Megan Kamrick in for Antonia Gonzalez. The National Congress of American Indians placed CEO Dante Desiderio on administrative leave just as the organization starts its mid-year conference in Anchorage. In a written statement, NCAI President Fawn Sharp called the timing of the action inopportune but says, quote, it's necessary and proper to fulfill governance duties and to abide by NCAI's policies and procedures. The statement declined to provide any additional details. NCAI's conference in Alaska is the organization's first in-person conference in almost two and a half years. Meanwhile, Indians.com paints a picture of dissatisfaction with NCAI from tr member tribal leaders and points to an inability to connect with members, slow progress with hiring goals, and continued high staff turnover. NCAI says Desiderio is not separated from the organization and that team leaders from the executive committee will take over day-to-day -day duties and ensure the mid-year conference continues operations as expected. In Oklahoma, a Cherokee Nation gaming subsidiary will pay $450 million for a Mississippi casino currently owned by MGM Resorts. KODE and the Las Vegas Review-Journal report the tribe plans to expand gaming outside of Oklahoma with the purchase. The Gold Strike Tunica Casino is located on the Mississippi River, about 30 minutes from Memphis, and has over 1,100 luxury rooms. It features high-stakes gaming as well as a conference center and dining. The U.S. Army has begun another disinterment at the site of the former Carlisle Indian Industrial School to reunite the remains of eight Native American children with family members. WITF reports the children were from the Washoe, Catawba, Umpqua, Oneida, Ute, and Alaskan Aleut tribes. It's the fifth such disinterment with the remains of 21 Native American children returned to date. The school was operated by the Department of Interior from 1879 until 2018 with the motto, Kill the Indian, Save the Man. More than 10,000 children attended the school from approximately 50 different tribes. More than 180 died from hunger and disease. Starting in 2016, some remains began being returned as tribes reached out to the Department of the Army. The Army reimburses families for their travel to participate in a transfer ceremony. It also funds the cost for transport and reinterment. The Portland Museum of Art and tribal leaders held a transfer ceremony recently to return nine objects of cultural patrimony to the Central Council of Clinkett and Haida Indian Tribes of Alaska. The museum said the objects were collected by a school superintendent in Wrangell and Skagway, Alaska, between 1921 and 1944. After his death, the museum purchased them from a dealer in 1948. The Central Council and the Wrangell Cooperative Association claimed the items in 2002 under the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. The objects include a killer whale hat from the original Chief Shakes House flotilla, robes, a mud shark hat and mud shark shirts, and the storm headdress. 
Kathleen Ash Milby, who is Diné, is curator of Native American art for the museum. She said in a press release that by returning these objects, the museum can begin to, quote, repair a complicated history between indigenous people and museums. The bodies of a missing Brazilian indigenous expert and a British journalist may have been found in the Amazon rainforest. The Guardian reports Bruno Pereira and Dom Phillips went missing a week ago when they were returning from a reporting trip. An aide to the Brazilian ambassador to the UK gave the news to Phillips' family and said the men were tied to a tree. Pereira had faced threats for his work in the region where he helped 26 indigenous tribes monitor and protect their land from illegal loggers, miners, hunters, and fishers. For National Native News, I'm Megan Kamrak. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. With so many organizations trying to help military veterans, it can be hard to find the right information. So AARP brings together no-charge employment and fraud prevention resources, caregiving tools, discounts, and more at aarp.org slash veterans who support this show. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Starting this fall, the Metropolitan State University of Denver will provide Native students waivers for tuition and fees. The move follows action by the Colorado Legislature last fall to offer in-state tuition to Native students enrolled in federally recognized tribes with historical ties to Colorado. The State of Oregon, University of California system, and the University of Minnesota system also have tuition waivers for Native students. On top of that, a number of states like New Mexico, Nevada, and Michigan are offering free tuition for some eligible students. Coming up, we'll take a look at this growing trend and how free tuition could improve Native student enrollment statistics. And as always, you're more than welcome to join our conversation. Does this topic change your mind about how you or the future college student in your family can afford higher ed? We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. On our show today, we have three guests who work closely with College Tuition Matters on behalf of Native American students. First up is Fenosha Bowerly, who is speaking with us from Berkeley, California, where she is the Director of Native American Student Development at the University of California, Berkeley. She's from the Crow Tribe. Fenosha, thanks for coming on the show today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. And Fenosha, anytime we hear the words free and college in the same sentence, people's ears perk up. So tell us more about this new program at the University of California, Free Tuition for Native Students. Yes. Um, the University of California president recently announced that um, the whole UC system, so all nine campuses, will be offering uh, a scholarship, which is a little bit different than a tuition waiver um, for all federally recognized enrolled members of federally recognized tribes who are in-state residents, um, which removes some barriers for students who may um, not be able to otherwise afford uh, 
coming to the University of California or one of its campuses. Um, what's different about it in, in some ways is the UC system already has many financial aid um, opportunities for low-income first-gen students. So this, this actually removes barriers for some of the middle-class students where that may not already be getting Cal Grant or a full what they call Cal Grant um, opportunities. Okay, and we hear so much about those students, right? They, they have, uh, they can't qualify for for some of the low income tuition uh, opportunities, but yet they don't make enough money. Their families aren't wealthy enough that they can just cover uh, cost of college education out of pocket. So that sounds really promising. Phoenicia, where is the money coming from to make these scholarships possible? Yes. So um, for the first four years, the president, office of the president has provided some funding. Um, to even out across the campus. So it's coming from uh, University of California funds. Um, I think there's a variety of them versus what has happened in other states where it gets passed through the legislature and then it's state funded. Okay, so no taxpayer money is, is paying for this then, right? Um, you know, and that, I can't say that definitively. There may be some funds that are pumping to it, but it's not across the board, you know, fully tax funded. Correct. Okay. And what are your estimates? I mean, about how much money will this program save the average Native student attending one of the schools in the University of California system? Well, <laughs> that's actually kind of hard to say. Um, I think approximately the approximate cost of attending a UC is with tuition and fees, the student fees that it covers, is around 14000 give or take a little bit. Um, so... I think for those students who were looking, who don't, aren't eligible for aid, it could be fourteen thousand. Um, for some, it may just adjust for part of. They might have received partial aid, and this will cover the rest of that um, that wasn't covered. So it could be up to fourteen thousand dollars per student. Okay, so this sounds like a last dollar scholarship then. So after other forms of, of financial aid, other scholarships are exhausted. That remaining balance that a student might owe in order to to go to school, this scholarship will step in and, and cover that, that last mile, more or the last dollar? Yeah, if, if they didn't qualify financially for it. Um, it's not to say that it, it wouldn't cover, I mean, they would wait for other scholarships to be applied that are outside, but it's it's a financial need. Um, if, if you already qualified for those uh, scholarships, they, I think all you see is if you may, if people make under $80,000, you get free tuition and fees. So those folks aren't going to see the scholarship hit because um, they already would have received financial aid. But anything above that, a students who weren't eligible for those kinds of scholarships would receive it. Okay. And Phoenicia, do you think that this is a, a growing trend here with regard to these scholarships like you're describing there at the University of California, other types of tuition waivers we're hearing about with other schools and other states? I think it, I think it is. I mean, I grew up in Montana, and I attended Montana State, um, and at the time, we had tuition fee waivers, um, tuition and fee waivers for Native students who were from tribes within the state. They are now scholarships that um, they change the, the funding source, but I think, you know, at that time, there weren't a lot. Um, I don't want to say how long I've been out of undergraduate, but it's been it's been a, a while. And uh, I think I'm seeing, as a professional in higher ed, more and more schools in the last five years really looking at that as a way to um, address inequity and and start trying to provide better access for uh, Native students to attend 
universities. Okay. Well, that's interesting that, that you um, were able to benefit from a program like that in Montana. Cause I also, um, when I first graduated from high school, I'm not going to say what year that was. Let me just say it was uh, the same year that the first Top Gun movie came out around that same time. But I, I went to high school in Michigan. And when I graduated, I, I went uh, right out of high school. I went to, to college for a couple of years there in Michigan at a state school. And they had a tuition waiver at the time. And I know they still do. And I think it might have gone away for a few years and it came back. But when I was there, it was it was there. And I qualified, even though I was not uh, a, a Michigan native. They were in Pueblo, but I still qualified. So that some of these programs have been around a, a while, it seems like. And um, but it but it does seem like they're getting more attention now. What? Why is that? You know, I think it's a variety of reasons. Um, I think that in the last decade, we've seen uh, a a broader reach from tribes and tribal sovereignty starting to come into the into higher ed and and institutions trying to understand that. Um, I think depending on what state you're in, you know, in California, gaming tribes have a lot of um, political leverage and that has started to, I think, impact um, how higher ed looks at who they're serving um, in our state in particular. I I think also in California, um, you know, Governor Gavin Newsom gave an apology a few years ago for the, for genocide. He didn't say genocide, but for the, the past um, treatment of Native American peoples and established a truth and um, healing council to look at how to heal and move forward. And I think that's also, you know, something that we're seeing nationally, sort of a, a greater awareness of history and limited access, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Excuse me. Okay. I think also there's the, the the land back movement has brought attention, you know, to sort of where some a lot of these schools are land grant institutions, and the higher ed or the, I'm sorry, the High Country News article that Tristan Atone and Bobby Lee published a few years ago really cast a light on you know the funding that was created for these schools from stolen land. Yeah, and that's something that's always really interested me as well, because many of these schools, these universities, many, many years ago, they were built on tribal lands. And when first chartered, they agreed to grant Native students free tuition in some cases, right? Right. Or or that they were supposed to support, yes, provide access to, and, and many didn't. Okay. Yeah, it's, 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 it's really interesting. And I know some of the Ivy Leagues, and I know at one time the University of Michigan, they were sued back in the, the early 70s because they had one of those uh, land-grant agreements of some sort, and um, they were sued because they, Native students argued that they were in violation of that. And I, unfortunately, I don't think they won that lawsuit, but it de- this was, I mean, we're talking going back almost 50 years. So some of these issues have, have been on the table for a long time. So but anyway, Phoenicia, going back to, to what's going on there at, at Berkeley, are you seeing uh, already in the admissions process for the fall, are you seeing more Native students applying there at Berkeley? You know, we are just um, getting ready to start sort of the the fall application push, um, we don't get, the students don't have to apply it. In, the deadline isn't until November. Um, but there's definitely been an increase in interest. I get many calls and emails um, asking about the process and how um, those scholarships are applied. So I think we'll see 
an increase in applications for sure. We're already prepping so that we can monitor, you know, the uptick if there is one in um, applications from Native students. And tell us a little bit more about the Native student population there at Berkeley. Are most of them from California, California tribes? I think we have a big mix um, because California is such a huge state. Um, and there's many cities in California that actually were um, the, I guess, end, end place for a lot of folks who went through the relocation um, during the Relocation Act. So San Francisco, um, Los Angeles, Sacramento. Um, so there's a lot of Natives who live in urban areas that relocated generations ago from reservations out of state, but then we also have the largest number of tribes in the country in our state. So it's it's a big mix. Um, I would say, I, off the top of my head, I can't say 50-50, but we've definitely seen more Native Californians um, in the last decade coming to California, to UC Berkeley. So I think we are, we're a unique mix. We're also a unique mix in that it's a lot of urban and suburban natives who are coming, not straight off the reservation. Okay. Well, Phoenicia, thanks for that background. And any listeners with a question or comment, you know the number, 1-800-996-2848. We're waiting to hear from you. We'd love to hear your questions, your comments, your ideas, your thoughts on this whole issue. Again, a growing trend of offering free college education for Native students at many universities across the country. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. We'll be back right after this short break. Diné composer Raven Chacon already has an impressive body of work and a lifetime of Native arts advocacy. Now he's being recognized with the Pulitzer Prize the first Native person to receive the award for music. We'll catch up with Raven Chacon and find out where he's going from here. That's on the next Native America Calling. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Today we're talking about the growing trend of offering a free college education for Native students. Are you taking advantage of tuition waivers at colleges in your state? If so, we'd sure like to hear from you. Join the conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. It's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Now joining us also from Berkeley is Joseph Lindsay. He's the Director of Admission and Operation at Berkeley Law. He's Chimawavy from the Colorado River Indian Tribes. Joseph, thank you for coming on the show as well. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, Joseph, there's also a tuition program for Native students at the Berkeley Law School. Tell us more about it. Yeah, so we're very fortunate to participate in the Native American Opportunity Plan. Our students, um, current and incoming students, are able to benefit from the university's Office of the President with regards to helping to support our students in the graduate portion of their tuition fees. But we realize that's not enough. Um, so what ended up happening in a conversation with our dean at the law school was that we actually wanted to increase the amount then that students are um, able to receive in this award. And part of the, the tuition that students pay to attend law school is what we call our professional degree supplemental tuition. 
we use it as an acronym, we call it PDST, and that's actually the bulk of their tuition. Um, it's roughly about $21,300 per semester, and the um, that portion of it is significant when you're thinking about six semesters of enrollment. And so what we um, are doing moving forward for the start of this coming fall is that then the Native American Opportunity Plan within the law school will actually be full, full tuition and fees for someone who is an enrolled member of a federally recognized tribe and also classified as a California resident for tuition and fees purposes. Okay, Joseph, so you just shared a little more than 21,000 a semester. So we're talking over $42,000 a year then to attend Berkeley Law, right? It's actually 59,000. <laughs> 59, so okay, it, wow. Yeah, because our tuition is composed of graduate tuition for attending UC Berkeley, but then there's also a professional fee um, and any other um, required fees that any student would pay. So we're, we're covering quite a bit. And we're very fortunate, you know, be able to participate in this particular program and then also use scholarship monies to help support. Yeah, and that's a big number, but not surprising considering how much more expensive graduate programs tend to be than undergrads, because earlier we heard uh, Fenosha share that it's about 14000 a year to attend Berkeley undergrad. So, Joseph, do you think you'll see an influx of Native students at Berkeley Law because of the gift aid program? Well, we've actually already seen some interest, you know, of course, through calls, people are asking about how this would impact them if they apply within the upcoming, um, you know, application cycle. But we've been pretty fortunate because we've, we've already seen kind of a resurgence of Native students wanting to attend Berkeley um, within the past five years. I mean, we've always had Native students attending our program, but we've been very fortunate because of our hires with our faculty member, um, Seth Davis, for example. Uh, we've been able to reform our Native uh, American Law Student Association, what we call NALSA. Um, they were actually able, within within a very short amount of time, they hosted the National NALSA Moot Court Competition. And because of a lot of our students and just how we connect with an Indian country, it's, we've, we're seeing you know more and more students interested through word of mouth. Well, that's great. And Joseph, what about uh, the tribes there in California and other parts of the country that have students there in the California system? Are they supportive of these new programs? I would say yes, but I mean, there's, the tribes already are extremely supportive of those students that attend the law school. You know, of course, as you know, many of the tribes either, um, depending on the law school they're attending, they may already have MOUs, uh, agreements with the school to support their students as they're attending the school. Um, and so, you know, of course, they, this is also a great opportunity to partner with the, or with the tribes as well. And what else can we do if they're able to receive this particular award? What else can, can they help do and how can we, we better our relations then with them? Okay. And Joseph, earlier, Fenosha and I were talking about some of these schools all over the country, both public and private, that were built on tribal lands and had these agreements to provide resources or tuition waivers or whatnot for Native students. Do you know how many of those old programs are still around? Have you heard? Well, like you mentioned, the Michigan Indian tuition waiver is one of them. For example, I believe Wisconsin has something similar. Um, but then there's, uh, you know, you're seeing other scholarship opportunities that are coming to play. Several of the ones like Arizona has it mostly based off of um, the tribes within the state that you can get in-state tuition. Uh, but, you know, of course, then it will just depend on the tribe if they border or 
or encroach on the, the, the territory there, the state lines. Um, I'm only aware of a few, um, but, you know, what I've seen now is more of, like, the, the some of the gaming tribes awarding scholarships, like Grayton is awarding one for UCLA's law school. Okay. And speaking of, of Grayton Rancheria, we just had their tribal chair, Greg Saris. He was on our show just a couple of weeks ago. And he mentioned that in addition to the to the scholarship or the program you just you just stated, they're also Grayton is extending apparently so this program, like the one we just talked about with Fenosha, that's uh only federally recognized native students are eligible for that. And I know that he said that Grayton is stepping up and they're gonna cover the cost for students in the University of California system who are native, but they are from state recognized tribes as opposed to federally recognized tribes. Do you know anything about that? So I believe, um, and I finish, you can always correct me too, because part of the conversation, but there is going, the work, to, uh, the discussion is to help to set up a foundation, uh, an account that would actually be the one that would oversee um, the awarding of that particular scholarship that goes to an enrolled member of a state recognized tribe. So, and as long as they still meet the conditions of being a California resident for uh, tuition and fees purposes. And so this would then help to benefit uh, native students within California, for example, and other, um, other native students of other state recognized tribes that are within the state of California and able to attend, you know, any of our UC systems, whether they be undergraduate or graduate programs. Okay. And Fenosha, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think just as correct in that. Um, but I think what it's amazing what Chairman Sarah stepped up to do. Um, there are several other tribes who are in that conversation. I mean, Grayton was the one to say first that they would, pledge that $2.5 million. Um, but really what that is to address is in California, we have Prop 209, which um, basically bans uh, affirmative action in admission practices or um, financial aid practices. And so legally, that's part of why the president, um, made it, the whole the scholarship is specifically for federally recognized tribes, is um, Prop 209 does not apply, it's a racial um ethnic uh, law and tribal sovereignty under federal federal recognition by law then um, would all is is make that moot so but because there is not legally sovereign nations that are not federally recognized they, they couldn't extend that scholarship so this scholarship extends to those those folks who are not covered by federal recognition which is amazing and I think what what the president was trying to do in partnering we can't we can't have legally any kind of um, say in what those funds how those funds are spent but if there's leftover and by the by the data that they looked at there likely will be at least in the first year um, leftover funds because the number of students who are members of California Indian tribes who are not federally recognized is pretty low um, that those funds may actually be able to be applied for to um, by other students already getting the funds to say for professional fees because Berkeley Law is the first school that um, is going above the basic tuition um, and there are other business like the school of business other programs that could do that in the future if they wanted so the scholarship fund for non-federally recognized tribes is really huge and also could 
go to cover housing, which is a huge part of, um, at least in the Bay Area and California, a very expensive part of um, the college experience that isn't covered by tuition fees. So that, that I'm really thrilled about that scholarship. And also, there are many, tri- many tribes who are interested in paying into a foundation as well to keep that going. Okay. And Fenosha, you mentioned the, the housing, the room and board. So that's not covered um, by these other programs that you've just mentioned. And um, like for a student there at Berkeley, in addition to the $14,000 a year, what does that cost for them to live there on campus or nearby and, and, and be right there close to, to where the school is? It's, it's a lot. I mean, I think the Bay Area is one of the most expensive places to live. So um, it, it upwards, uh, I think some of the less expensive dorms for undergraduates are 1600 I think starting at 1600 a month. Um, if you're a graduate student, you're looking at, um, if you're living by yourself or with a couple of roommates, you're looking at probably starting about the same. Some, some students live on, you know, 700 to 1000 a month in in a very, very shared living environment, but um, it's expensive and it's a significant cost for the whole year. And that's not including food and transportation, et cetera. Okay. Well, Joseph, what about other graduate programs there at Berkeley? I know they've got an amazing uh, school of public health. Are are there other um, scholarships and other grant programs available to assist native students that want to pursue some of those programs and those those advanced degrees? I mean, there's definitely beyond what the university offers, there's always opportunities that when we're doing our outreach, either like through College Horizons, Graduate Horizons, we're reminding students to look at all of the different opportunities that are available to help Native students. Um, there's the American Indian College Fund, uh, for example, there's the Cobell Scholars. Um, there's just different ways in which you can receive support. Um, Definitely there are, there's the funds that are available through the university. And so we are always encouraging students to be able to connect with those admissions departments to find out what support is given for graduate students within their particular program. But it never hurts because like you mentioned, some of the, what we're offering is coming up to cover costs of tuition and fees. And so there's, there's also then how do I support my cost of living expenses? And we often see times students will not apply for additional scholarships while they're in school. And so what better way than to kind of use these different um, other resources that are available? You are dealing then with more of a larger pool, but it never hurts. There's no harm in it because then at least it helps to offset what you're taking out in student loan debt. And so we're always saying, mentioning those. And then of course, as Native peoples, you know, we often fall under Uh, may identify as members of like the Latinx community, Black or African-American. We may identify as Asian or Pacific Islander. And so what other ways to look at yourself and realizing like these are other avenues in which I can explore to get additional funding. And definitely too, donors um, like at the law school, for example, want to help support students while they're continuing. And so it just is a matter of applying for those additional scholarships to help get funding, even to help cover the cost of books, because for us, books, on average, can be about $2,000 for the year. Mm, yeah, it's expensive. Well, and speaking of the cost of books, and, and Joseph, you mentioned student loans, and what about efforts just to make college more affordable by lowering the cost of a college education? And, you know, you hear different numbers being thrown around, but they all indicate that over the last couple of generations, the rising cost of a college degree has far 
outpaced inflation. And is there any way to slow that trajectory down without looking to these types of programs, without looking to tax, taxpayer support and other sources to make up that difference? Oh, I, I mean, that I wish I could say I had an answer to. I mean, I feel like there are so many different factors that are at play. I realize the hardest part about, you know, attending school is the investment um, and just the cost. And that for us or for me, even, you know, that is, is a big barrier and why it's like wanting to go for an additional degree or to an, an even enroll in college because these costs are, you know, debt that I'm going to have to then take on that I would have to then pay back. And then how am I supposed to do that to support family members? But in the end, I think. You know, I, I wish I really had an answer to that. I, I always look more at the fact that the investment that the student is making is not only going to benefit their their families, but their communities, because then, you know, I start to ask them to consider then what are the outcomes of earning this degree? What is the, the you know, the opportunities that would be made available to you, the positions you would hold, the impact you would be making upon our community, and then also then being able to use that in a way to leverage to advocate for what you're saying too and helping to make it more affordable to make it more accessible um, to help to reduce the the rising costs in tuition but in order for us to do that we need a seat at the table and we need individuals that are members of our community that are willing you know that are willing to be part of this conversation um, you look at statistics and data now and the percentage of native students that are going into not just earning a bachelor's degree but going into advanced degrees graduate or other terminal degrees is significantly smaller um, as compared to other individuals from other, you know, um, communities of color or even within um, those that identified as white. Um, so it's important, I feel, that we still um, at least let provide those resources and tools for students to know of and to let them know that it is accessible. Um, there is an investment to it, but understanding in the end what the outcome is and helping to provide them with those resources so that they make the best choices for them. Okay. Well, let me ask Fenosha to chime in as well. Fenosha, any thoughts on, on ways to slow down that trajectory of higher costs for a college education? Yeah, I mean, I think what specifically what we've been talking about all the schools that you've noted or not maybe all of them but the majority of them are state schools um, where the funding does come from the state which is taxpayer money generally and what we're seeing most as, as a national trend is there is a divestment in supporting um, the cost of the, running these institutions um, across the board and I think you know it, the UC system UC Berkeley receives just a tiny fraction of actually what where their funding comes from, um, from the state. I mean, it's still technically a state college, but it's I think it's less than 10% of the funding for running mm -hmm. the school actually comes from the state. And I think that's um, that because that's a national trend, it's not always at that level from state to state, but I think as a society, we need to think about the things that we're invested in. These are These are the next generation of leaders and doctors and lawyers and the folks who will be and and if we're not investing in them how are we what's the message that we're sending to people about who should be able to attend school and who should be the people who are doctors and lawyers you know which is it's a very different thing than private institutions which fundraise their own funds um, we often lose our students to private institutions that top students because they can offer scholarships that are better than what the state can so I think 
my my it, it's not a popular idea to pay more taxes, but I think we we it may not be paying more taxes, but more taxes should be going to education and access to okay. education. Okay. And one thing I think it's fair to point out, and I'm glad you mentioned you know, the state versus private university uh, dynamic, because in all fairness, when people read those statistics about the runaway cost of a college degree, oftentimes that increase is coming more from the private schools as opposed to the state schools, which I don't think people necessarily think about when they first see these, these numbers. Oh, it's so far outpaced inflation. But we're going to talk more about this issue when we come back from this break. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. My name is Assad. When I was 19, my mom was diagnosed with colorectal cancer because she smoked. My tip is find things to be thankful for. I'm thankful she quit smoking. I'm thankful for the nurses who taught me how to check her IV and to manage her medication. And I'm thankful for every day we have together because nothing is guaranteed, especially for us. The people you love are worth quitting for. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Welcome back to Native America Calling. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Can free tuition close the higher education gap for Native students? Several states and some individual institutions are working to find out by offering tuition waivers. Still time to let us know what you think about the opportunity. We're at 1-800-996-2848. 1-800-996-2848. Let's bring our third guest into the conversation now. Joining us from the Fond du Lac Reservation in Minnesota is Karen Diver. She's the Senior Advisor to the President for Native American Affairs at the University of Minnesota, and she's a member of the Fond du Lac Band of Lake Superior Chippewa. Karen, you've been a guest on NAC before. Welcome back. Thank you so much. Well, Karen, University of Minnesota is also offering free tuition for Native students. Tell us more about the program there at U of M. Well, we believe it's a, a good start. Um, we are starting with freshmen um, and college, tribal college transfer students this fall. Um, if you are a citizen of the 11 tribes in Minnesota, um, that's regardless of your residency. So if you went away on relocation, you can still come home and go to school. Um, so it is income-based. Um, it's, it's free under 75,000, 90% up to 100,000 in family income, um, and then 80% up to 125,000. Wow. Okay. Now, does this cover just tuition or is it also housing and related fees? Um, it is just tuition at this time, although we're looking at potential expansion of the program. Um, there's a lot of interest in it um, and tribal leaders have given some feedback as well um, to the president. So we'll be continuing to look to improve the program as time goes on. Okay. And how is this program possible? Where's the money coming from? This is existing university resources and, and realignment. So there's no legislative appropriation at this time. Um, and we're just kind of making this available out of what we have already. Okay, well, that's really promising. And um, so fees, books, living costs, those won't be covered. But what other resources are there there in Minnesota for Native students to access to have those other costs covered? 
So we do have some existing scholarships already that are um, with the foundation that learners can access that are geared towards Native American learners. In addition to that, um, we are making sure the support services are there so each of our learners um, can have access to university professionals to help them seek out other sources. And we've created some resource pages for families um, to do some research. In addition, if they're interested in particular in um, their language and being a, a language teacher, we have the Ojibwe and Dakota um, language houses um, where the cost of lodging is mostly covered. Oh, that's cool. So <clears throat> native housing specific there on campus, is that what you're talking about? Yes, dormitories. Okay. Well, earlier we talked a little bit about these last dollar scholarships that pick up where other sources of financial aid leave off. Is this the last dollar scholarship opportunity that you're describing as well? Um, not exactly. Um, any kind of public sources like Pell, um, things like that. But if they have any private scholarships, those would come first. So if they have tribal scholarship funding, um, or any other private scholarships that they're awarded, those would come first. Or, excuse oh. me, um, University of Minnesota's would come first. This okay. really is enabling any funding that they can get from their tribe. Um, they can use that then to help pick up um, fees or lodging. Okay, understood. And Carol, what is this trend of, of free college tuition say to you about Native American higher education here in the, U in the year 2022? I think it's a combination of two things. Um, much like was spoken about earlier, it really is something of a reckoning of the past and how um, these institutions were created and funded by Indian land, the theft of Indian land. But I think it also speaks to contemporary um, workforce development needs of tribes. In addition to um, universities engaging more with tribal leadership on a really contemporary level, um, you know, the tribes here in Minnesota have been very clear that if you look at them collectively, they're the 14th largest employer in the state and largely rural areas. And they have workforce development needs that aren't being filled because, you know, we need to get their students into training programs that prepare them for life of service um, in their home communities, whether that's medical careers, um, whether it's accounting, um, planners, um, teachers, you know, the whole gamut of authority that tribes exercise as contemporary governments. Okay. And Karen, what more do you think public colleges and universities can do to support Native students? I mean, these scholarships we're learning about today, these financial opportunities, they're wonderful, but uh, they still need more support in addition to that, don't they? What, what else can they do? Absolutely. I spoke about the supportive services, so we're undergoing a thorough review on each of our campuses to see what um, support services are available to these students. We know that, you know, attracting the students is only a piece of the puzzle and retention ends up being the second piece. And retention really goes to how do you create community on campus where um, these students don't have to spend time being representational. 
you know, they don't have to be the only Native person in the room. They can go and not talk about being Native and just be in community um, with other Indigenous folks, um, you know, and and laugh and, and cry and be supportive and supported and talk about being homesick and, um, you know, reminded of the importance of the investment in themselves and why they came in the first place. So support services, building community, helping them navigate, problem solve. These institutions are fairly opaque in terms of how they operate. And so sometimes when you run into difficulty, you just kind of accept the answers you're given without knowing that you have options and and you have people that can help you problem solve. So um, we are making sure that um, we are investing in those support services because we want them to take advantage of the tuition um, program, but then um, be able to successfully graduate. Okay. And Karen, tell us about some of the education programs there at the University of Minnesota that that draw Native students. Well, I mentioned briefly the language programs. Our American Indian Studies um, Department is actually the oldest in the country. It's It's been around since the 70s. So, um, you know, and that literally sometimes the only place where you see pedagogy that's reflective of indigenous folks. Um, so for us, it is building out those language programs, continuing to support those language learners. We know how fundamental um, preservation of languages to tribal communities in terms of the resiliency of their youth um, and engagement. So really making sure that those are um, well supportive and you know students can find a home there. But we're also kind of challenging some of the other disciplines on campus. What do you have to offer Native American communities? Um, we don't want our academic offerings to always be reflective of a Western you know, kind of educational and research focused. Um, you know, traditional ecological knowledge, for example, is another area that's getting more attention from Western-based scientists as being valid um, and useful in this time of climate change. But what other fields can we put that those types of um, focuses on? One of the ones we do really well with, um, particularly on the University of Minnesota Duluth campus, is around healthcare careers um, and indigenous physicians, especially family practice uh, physicians, and having some robust offerings around the unique needs of Native Americans in healthcare. So, you know, continuing to build out some of those academic offerings that where students can see themselves see the relevance of these educations to them and their home communities and their families. Um, so that's the next piece of the puzzle is how do we um, make these institutions truly reflective of everyone, including indigenous peoples? Okay. And Karen, right now in academia, there's so much debate about uh, the importance of STEM and, and should students prioritize degrees in STEM fields as opposed to liberal arts. And I'm curious there for, for Native students at the University of Minnesota, do they have equal opportunities in terms of some of these programs, regardless of whether they choose a STEM degree or a non-STEM degree? I think we're moving towards that with some really key steps. One of the things we did is we got rid of um, the ACT and the SAT um, as a criteria for admissions. We know that standardized testing is one of the barriers um, to 
to students that aren't white, frankly. Um, you know, so that's, if they have that interest, you know, they don't have to worry about, you know, bias and testing um, for admissions. And then once they get in the door, we can help them if they need it in terms of success. I think a lot more institutions are also looking at uh, bridging programs and reaching into high school um, so that you can make sure, for, especially for STEM careers, um, that your math skills are where they need to be um, as you come into higher ed um, and that there aren't any other barriers. You know, it's, we really need to be honest. Um, K-12 indigenous schools, native schools, whether they're run by the tribe or whether um, you know, there are mainstream school districts where there's high numbers of Native students because we fund K-12 based on property taxes. Um, you know, a lot of our kids are coming from um, educational institutions that are underfunded in the K-12 system. So sometimes you need to do some of that remedial work um, in order to provide equal opportunities to these learners. Okay, Karen, and thinking more about academic performance, you mentioned, you know, some of these standardized tests and whatnot. For for this program here at the University of Minnesota, are, are Native students required to maintain a specific GPA to be eligible each semester? Um, they have to have adequate academic standing, um, which is basically a C average. Okay. Fenosha, how about there at, at the University of California? Is there a, an academic requirement? Um, no, there's no academic requirement um, initially. I mean, I think you have to make good academic standing. They'd have to, to be able to continue to go to school. You have to maintain a certain academic standing, but not to receive scholarships. Okay. All right. And Karen, the number of college students is down, oh, depending on what statistics you read, about 5% since the beginning of the pandemic. And, and there at the University of Minnesota, are you seeing the enrollment figures for Native students, are, are they aligned with that national average of about 5%? Are there less Native kids going to school right now? Um, we did see a drop during the pandemic in Native learners. We saw um, a drop in all learners during the p pandemic. Some of that had to do with, you know, the restrictions on um, international students in particular, but actually all demographics saw a drop. Um, since the announcement of the tuition program, we did see a 16% increase in native enrollments, confirmed enrollments for the Twin Cities campus and our University of Minnesota Morris campus um, saw about a 25% increase. So um, we're hopeful with the increased incentive in terms of the tuition program that um, we can get those numbers back up. Okay. And Karen, earlier we discussed a little bit of information regarding, you know, the, the different costs between public universities and colleges versus private. And, and like I mentioned before a, a break, you know, we're seeing a, a big increase, you know, college tuition costs are up across the board, but we're seeing a really dramatic spike with regard to the private schools. So you're there at a, at a public university, University of Minnesota. What's your thought on that? If a, if a young native person comes in and, um, you know, they're, they're really interested in a, in a private school, but it's just going to cost them a whole lot more to go to a school like that. What do you tell a student? I would say if you are, you know, depending on where you are as an individual student, um, make institutions compete for you. Um, if, if you are sitting well academically, um, 
you know, there is no reason why you can't tell a private institution or a public institution for that matter, you know, what is the best you can offer me? What else is available? Um, you know, many times they have advantageous programs that really help with your experience, whether it's leadership programs or um, those that are combined with internships, um, you know, or paid positions, you know, make them work to have you there. Okay, I like that. <laughs> make them compete for you. And, and you shared a, a few tips on that. And <clears throat> what about... Can a can a, a young native student just just call an admissions director and say, hey, you know what? I'm a native student and I want to go to your Ivy League school or your or your elite private university. And what are you going to do to help me make that happen? Can can that work? Yes, it can. Yes, it absolutely can. And there are some very good institutions, um, you know, whether they're Ivy League or not. Um, but you know, the Ivies have. Um, you know, Dartmouth has a program for Native American students. You know, there's a pretty robust um, program at, at Harvard as well, but also these public institutions where you can be closer to home. Um, you know, that's the advantage that, you know, we're talking about, whether it's the University of California and the University of Minnesota or Michigan or anybody else is, you know, you can maintain, you know, the ability to drive home on the weekend and touch bases with family and, and participate in events. And sometimes for our native learners, things like that are just as important as a brand name, but you should also look mm -hmm. at the quality of the program and your interests. Um, you know, each of us in these public institutions have strengths in terms of their academic offerings and and they should pay attention to that as well. It will help them later with their job searches. Okay. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for today. Let, let me thank our guests, Joseph Lindsay, Karen Diver, and Fenosha Bowerly for a thoughtful overview of an increasing trend, tuition waivers for Native American college students. Join us tomorrow for a conversation with Pulitzer Prize winning Diné composer Raven Chacon. Until then, I'm Sean Spruce. Thanks for listening. Mesa Lands Community College can help you lead the way in your chosen field. At Mesa Lands, where one in three students is Native American, you get hands-on opportunities working one-on-one -on -one with instructors in wind energy, where students go up the turbine in their first semester, silversmithing with access to the largest foundry in the Southwest, and blacksmithing in the cowboy arts. Mesa Lands has a national top 10 rodeo team, too. Info and applications at mesalands.edu. Mesa Lands Community College supports this program. First baby, don't know where to start, CMS program coverage, prenatal service. Enroll today. Contact your local Indian health care provider for more information. Visit healthcare.gov or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One. 
the Native American Radio Network.